1: That's solid.
0: That's not veneer. That's solid stuff.
1: Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.
0: Blob Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, you can subscribe to our show at either iTunes or iTunes or on the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org, slash radio. Uh, or you can, however you are currently listening to this, if you have any podcast directory, you can subscribe to the show. Today's show will be about moving. how to know when to move up the infertility ladder, infertility treatment ladder. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both infertility and adoption, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring has a Heart Plus Pharmacy Savings Card, which helps patients, both cash-paying and insured patients, save money on their fertility medications. To get more information on this Heart Plus Pharmacy Savings Card, you can talk to your doctor, or you can visit the Faring website at faringfertility.com heart, or you can give them a call at 1-888-Faring, F-E-R-R-I-N-G. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter on any page, creatingafamily.org, uh, and it's on the top left-hand side of the page. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either infertility or adoption three times a week. You might enjoy my yesterday my blog yesterday, which was titled, or infertility patients and their children guinea pigs, it was uh, based on a interesting uh, uh, summary article in the fertility and sterility magazine i not magazine journal. Uh, where uh, the authors were questioning uh, or challenging the infertility medical community to be more involved with research on the long-term uh, development and outcome of children conceived. And it was a thoughtful uh, article. And uh, anyway, the blog was based on that, and I'd love to have you join in the discussion. You can find it at creatingafamily.org slash blog. This show, as well as all the resources, provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including we have Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They are pioneers of the first embryo donation program called Snowflakes. They've had well over 260 babies born with the assistance of the Snowflakes Embryo Donation Program. As you've just heard, Creating a Family is a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, medically accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. You just heard about a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors. So if you are looking for an infertility clinic, an infertility doctor, an infertility attorney or a therapist, uh, or a sperm bank, please make your first stop the Creating a Family Database, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, uh, number of cycles per year, just a whole host of criteria we think are important when choosing. And by using these databases, you support those who support us, and we thank you. On today's Creating a Family show, we will be talking about knowing when to move up the infertility treatment ladder. Our guest today will be Dr. Jamie Notman. She is a reproductive endocrinologist with RMA of New York and assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Notman, to Creating a Family.
1: Good afternoon. Thank you for having me, Dawn.
0: Well, thanks for being here. You know, I, I we were sometimes referred to infertility treatment as a ladder, although I, I realize it's probably not the most apt analogy. But doesn't treatment usually don't we? Isn't it isn't it relevant to think of treatment as beginning with the least invasive and progressing upward to more invasive type of treatments?
1: Yeah, you know, the the thing about fertility treatments is we do start we sort of start low and go high as the process continues. So I guess it's sort of like a step ladder or stepwise approach. Mm-hmm. Um, we start with the most conservative treatments because we always feel that if we can be successful with a conservative measure, we should try that before moving on to more um aggressive protocols.
0: Yeah, I think that's just a wise approach when you're t- with any any time you're involved with medicine is to start with the least uh the most conservative and, and and move upwards and certainly fertility treatment, you know, should be should be considered the same.
1: Here's There's a question certain- we have I was going to say there are certain exceptions to that rule Um, in a way, uh, meaning if we see a couple, let's say a couple comes in and you, uh, you know, your first impression is, you know, we'll start with an oral medication such as Clomid and something like an insemination or timed intercourse, but then in your fertility evaluation, you see that that couple may warrant more aggressive treatments, you would likely bypass the conservative treatment and move on to something more aggressive. So it does have to be individualized.
0: And that's so true, and I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the things we see here oftentimes uh, is that people sometimes stay uh, with the more conservative, least invasive uh, mm-hmm. uh, treatments for perhaps too long. And here's a, yeah. a case. And we got a, a uh, email from, or actually Facebook message from Doreen. She said, I've been on Clomid from my OBGYN for a year. When is it time to give up on that drug and go to something else? Um, so, then maybe that's a case in point, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, before we specifically answer her question, let me ask, uh, because Clomid is not the only oral medication, what are the other uh, drugs which have similar uses to Clomid, even if they may function slightly differently?
1: So Clomid is what we call a SERM, which means it's a so- selective estrogen receptor modulator. And people don't always know this, but actually a medication like tamoxifen is in the same class of drugs. So Coleman has been around for many, many, many years, and we've been using it for this purpose for a long time. Probably in the past five years or so, we started using a medication called letrozole. Letrozole works differently than Clomid in that it's um, it works, it's a peripheral, it inhibits an enzyme peripherally, but it does the same sort of, uh, it works in the same way as Clomid in that it's, it can be an ovulation induction agent. Um, and so a lot of people have started using letrozole more widely because we've noticed that it has, um, it's sort of not as harsh to the uterus. It, it doesn't thin the uterine lining as much. Um, occasionally you'll see people using dexamethasone or a steroid that can also help induce ovulation. It's another oral medication.
0: Okay, because I think we, all, when we speak of it, clomin has almost become like a generic term when people, Correct. I think, are often referring to all of them, and, and perhaps we should be a little more uh, careful. So how long should somebody stay on one of the oral medications? Clomethine, citrate, otherwise known as Clomid or Letrozole, or the other ones that you mentioned. Are the, would it be fair to say that they were all called selective estrogen receptor modulation modulators?
1: Well, uh, Letrozole is an aromatase inhibitor, but it's okay. so they are different classes of drugs, but yet they're used in the same fashion when you're using okay. them for ovulation induction.
0: I'm just going to um, say Clomid or Letrozole. Okay, Clomid so. or
1: Letrozole. So I sort of when I'm <laughs> so, thinking about using them and for how long, I, I sort of yeah. think about three things. The first thing that always comes to my head is how old is the patient that I'm dealing with? Because female age, we know so much of fertility has to do with female age. So if I'm seeing a woman who's let's say 28 years old and she's not getting pregnant because she's not getting her period regularly, I'll let her do clomid or letrozole for uh, you know somewhere of even up to six cycles for six months because we know that her fertility issue is quite different than somebody who I'm seeing who's 40 years old and isn't getting pregnant because maybe it's, she's facing age-related infertility. So I think the first thing you always have to think about is female age um, because that dictates how long you're going to be on the medication. Secondly, we often we have to think about why does this patient, is this patient not getting pregnant? Again, sort of going back to what I was saying, is this somebody who does not ovulate regularly? Because for someone that doesn't ovulate, Clomid's an excellent drug because it gets most women to ovulate. So we would often allow them to do up to six cycles of Clomid before moving on to something else. And then the last group that we sort of we are face um, you know some challenging treatment uh, battles is a couple that has unexplained infertility, which we we don't see that infrequently. You know, fifteen percent of couples fall into this unexplained infertility category. And for couples with unexplained infertility, there was a great study that was done. It's called the FAST trial, the Faster trial. Mm-hmm. It was done up in um, Massachusetts. Boston, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was out of uh, yeah,
0: I think it was out of Boston. We've talked about that. Go ahead. I find that I've I have found that to be so fascinating. Tell everybody what it it's is. It's
1: a great study. What they did was Massachusetts is a mandated state, so everyone gets infertility coverage. So what they did was they randomized couples that had unexplained infertility, where the partner was less, the woman was less than forty years old. Um, they put them either into a group that was going to get three cycles of Clomid and then go on to IVF or put people into three cycles of Clomid followed by three cycles of injectable medications with IUI and then IVF. And what they found was that the group that went from three cycles of Clomid right to IVF, they not only got pregnant quicker, pregnant quick, more quickly, but the cost was significantly less. So, and the
0: risk of multiples was less.
1: Correct, the risk of multiples is that that middle category of medication, which we you know sort of on the latter approach, you would say is sort of like the middle that's called the injectable medication, so the same medications that you take for IVF, but rather than doing an egg retrieval, you would combine it with insemination that's where you get your high order multiples that's where you often have to cancel um, ovulation induction cycles because people over respond so in that group I would say again, I'm I'm pretty strict with those couples about doing no more than three cycles of an oral medicine before I push them to try I try I urge them to do IBS.
0: Okay, and following kind of the, the faster uh study, the, the findings of the faster study. Okay. Um so who is Clomid I think you've answered this, but let me ask it another way. Who is who who what type of patient uh is either Clomid or Letrozole more likely to be effective with? You've said younger, okay? So younger, younger for sure. couples,
1: and the best okay. peop- the best group of people are people who are anovulatory or oligoovulatory. So women who don't ovulate on their own, or women who ovulate but at very infrequent intervals. So most of us, you know, we get our period, we ovulate once a month. But women who have oligoovulation, they may ovulate once every three months. So their chance of getting pregnant is a third of the regular person because they're only ovulating one out of every three months. So Clomid or Letrozole is excellent for them because it allows that patient to ovulate on a more regular basis.
0: Gotcha. How effective is uh, Clomid for an older woman, let's say a woman over 35, who also is showing signs of uh, uh, ovulatory issues of some sort?
1: So, Clomid statistics generally, the statistics that we have are not, are unfortunately, they're not as age broken down as our IVF data. What we do know is that when we give a medication like Clomid to a woman who has oligoovulation or anovulation, our chance of success per cycle of that woman getting pregnant is about 20%. So it's pretty good. But when you're looking at Clomid for a woman who has unexplained infertility or even an age-related infertility, the chance of success is like 8 to 10%. And you can pretty much assume that the older you are, the lower you are on that spectrum of um, success. So that's why you're sort of pushing someone forward into more treatments that have a better chance of success at that point.
0: Well, and there's also that the you know the conundrum you face that you don't want to waste too much time. You've got a 38 year old. Well, every month that goes by, well, that may be it's it's probably not an overstatement. It does seem a little overly dramatic, but truthfully, there is a pretty steep decline Mm -hmm. in fertility. So, doesn't that factor into it's kind of a how much time do you have to uh, play around, so to speak?
1: It's 100% is exactly what you're saying. I tell couples that, you know, what we know from population statistics or sort of general data is that most women, once they hit 37, 38, the slope of decline for fertility sort of picks up. I, I always liken it to, I don't know if people ski, but I say pretty much you're going along a sort of like a green slope until you hit 37, 38, and then it becomes blue, like meaning that incline becomes slightly steeper. You're losing egg quantity and egg quality at a higher rate. And then over 40, that slope sort of hits like a black diamond. It becomes even more significant. So we're sort of fighting against this clock. So the faster we can do more successful treatments, the better the chance that you will be successful.
0: Right. And that's something else to think about. Um, I, just, not, I can't remember. This has been within the last year. I read some research that indicated that uh and i believe they were speaking of clomethane citrate clomid uh, so i'm not sure if it was relevant to letrozole but they were talking that it might build up in the system I, i'm remembering so you i'm sure have read it so correct me if i'm wrong here mm-hmm. but that there are that that the that there is some risk to the child conceived i believe it was to the child not to the not to the woman so much but from a buildup of Clomid in the the system, or at least that was a hypothesis that might indicate that there might be more problems with children conceived uh, over long-term Clomid use. Am I remembering that research correctly?
1: You know, I think that there was something that came out regarding that, but I can't comment 100% because I'm not aware of it as much. Um, but i I would say that, like any medication you take, the longer you 're on something, probably the you know the longer the effects would stay in your system. you know with yeah. that being said we 've been given clomid for ovulation induction since i mean forever you know for yeah. so many years, so we have so much data on it, so again it 's a drug that we feel very comfortable prescribing
0: literally i mean these we it's been given for i mean 30 years for i mean it's been yeah, a long time yeah i think time, the right?
1: 1960s yeah. is when they started doing it so i mean it, it's right. really been a long time
0: what are some of the the side effects of either uh, clomiphene citrate or eletrozole?
1: so clomid most of the oral medications i tell patients are very well tolerated um with minimal side effects you will have a patient on Clomid who may occasionally complain of feeling have having hot flashes or mood swings or headaches, vaginal dryness. Occasionally you'll even have a patient complaining of sort of blurry vision and that's sort of a more of a serious um side effect. Uh, the most, ne- the biggest negative that we often face with Clomid is that it can thin your uterine lining because, again, Clomid is that category is a SERM, so which means in some areas of the body it's pro-estrogen and other areas it's anti-estrogen, and one of the areas that it's anti-estrogen is on the uterine lining. So you can see women who develop very thin uterine linings while taking Clomid, and that's um and that's not uncommon. I would say um but in general oral medications are pretty well tolerated. The bloating and sort of the uh, you know the weight gain that you will see with the injectable medications whether you're giving them for an insemination cycle or whether IVF you generally don't see that with the oral medicines.
0: Okay. Now I'd like to uh, move, well before I do, let me say you are listening to Creating a Family. Uh, Creating a Family's mission is to provide unbiased, accurate education and support for those touched by infertility or adoption. We have extensive resources on affording infertility treatment, including where to look for grants, loans, insurance, how to understand the multi-cycle programs offered by some clinics and much more to find all of these resources on affording fertility treatment, you can go to our website, creatingafamily.org, hover over the word infertility on the blue horizontal menu at the top, click on the word resources, and then click on affording infertility treatment. All right, I'd like to talk now moving, moving up that stepladder um, to uh, interuterine insemination, also known as artificial insemination, also known as IUI. And we have a question from Gina. She says, we will be having our first IUI next month. I'm excited but also scared. What can we do to increase our chances of it working? And again, IUI is interuterine insemination. So let's talk some about IUIs, how they work, uh, and uh, what, uh, who they should be used for, primarily used for, who they're most successful with, I guess it would be to say that, right. and what you could do to increase your chances of success.
1: Uh, IUI was initially designed as a way to um, help men, you know, help men with mild sperm issues. The process of IUI, what generally happens is a partner will come in, give us a sperm sample, and the laboratory will. I tell patients, like, to wash the sperm. They'll get the best, the most, um, the fastest moving, the best looking sperm. They'll wash those sperm to get the best sperm possible, and we'll replace that sperm into the by putting it into the uterus in the insemination process. Um, An insemination is pretty, it's quickly performed, it's painless, and it is, you know, it offers some increased success for couples that are facing, a, we would say, some mild male factor infertility. Additionally, inseminations are often used in combination with oral medications or even with injectable medications as a way to increase chances even more so than they would with intercourse, even if it's not simply a male factor issue.
0: And, and that is because you're uh, helping the sperm out by getting them closer to the egg. Correct. Is that an oversimplistic way no, of saying? No, it's
1: a hundred percent. I tell patients like when you have intercourse, the sperm is deposited in the vagina. By doing insemination, what we're doing is we're bypassing the vagina, we're bypassing the cervix, we're putting the sperm right into the uterus. We're not putting it right next to the egg as we do with IVF, but we are sort of bypassing two, let's say, you know, barriers or sort of two areas and increasing the chances. Additionally, by spinning the sperm, we're able to get the, we put back in, you know, the best, the most motile, we take out the debris, et cetera. So we also increase the chances that way.
0: Okay. So who is uh, – what type of patient would you think that IUI would be more likely to work with?
1: I, I, IUIs are very good for, for couples where they're having a, a male factor infertility issue. That's, that's more on the milder side, obviously with yeah, mild, milder. Yeah. milder mm-hmm. Because if you have a real sperm issue, like the sperm count is very low, um, generally, IVF is needed in, in that regard. But it's, if it's a mild male factor issue, insemination is a is a great way um, to sort of overcome that boundary. And even in couples that don't have a male factor issue, but we are giving an oral medication, IUI can give you a couple percentage points, you know, of a boost in your pregnancy rate. So we'll we'll often combine that with the oral medications.
0: So it's a couple of percentage points. If you've got if you're taking clomiphene citrate or letrozole, uh, and you would say it would be a couple of percentage points more likely to get pregnant if you uh, use IUI versus timed intercourse. Obviously, if you're taking an oral med, you're going to be making sure you're timing your intercourse.
1: Correct, correct. So it gives us a couple more percentage points for a couple that that does not technically, you know, have male factor infertility.
0: All right. Do you think it is possible to do a medicated, injectable medicated IUI cycle safely to avoid the conception of multiples? You had mentioned that uh and it's it's something of a uh one of our missions here at creating yeah. a family is to educate people about the risks of multiple pregnancies and to try to get uh a buy in to the idea that twins are not the preferred outcome right but uh one of the uh but higher what uh hopefully any listeners to long term listeners to creating a family already know this, but the higher order multiples we're talking triplets quads quints seps, sex you know, all those. Um, are usually the result of injectable medications with an IUI. So the, the question is, is it possible to really use those strong ovulatory injectable medications, ovulatory stimulating injectable meds, with an IUI and do it safely and, and, and not risk uh, multiples greater than twins?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can definitely do it. It just requires more intensive monitoring. Like you may require a patient to come to your office every day, every couple of days so that you can really watch what's going on so that it doesn't get out of control. Um, and you would give a lower dose of medication such so that you could control how many um, follicles are being produced. And then having a pretty liberal policy to cancel somebody if they have elevated estrogen levels or if they're producing multiple follicles so that you don't run into the situation where, you know, you have an outcome of a high-order multiple pregnancy.
0: Is it possible to convert the uh, IUI cycle to an IVF cycle if you see a woman has produced, let's say, five eggs, and you think, hmm, not a good idea to go ahead with yeah. an IUI? You know, um, can you, you, then could, convert?
1: you could, um, and definitely it is done occasionally, but I would say most of the time, programs don't do that um, or don't recommend doing that because you. I, I say to people, like, if you're going to do IVF, then do IVF the right way. Because with IVF, you'll generally start with a higher starting dose, mm-hmm. and with IUI, you've likely started with a lower dose but then gotten yourself sort of into some trouble, and now you're like, oh, I don't want to cancel this. Let's sort of just convert it. So ideally, you could totally, you can definitely do it, but ideally, you would say cancel this cycle and start again in the right way.
0: The disadvantage to that that people have to be willing to accept. I mean, this is the risk going forward if you decide to do, uh, and and I I think that sometimes people are not informed well about this because a lot of the costs. I know you know this, but I'm saying this uh-huh. for our audience, but a lot of the cost associated with fertility treatment is in the medication. Mm-hmm. and you, So you've incurred a fair cost. I don't know the exact amount, but, of course, it would depend on the dosage you're taking, but there's a lot of money spent on an injectable medicated IUI cycle, which makes people hesitant to cancel.
1: Yeah, no, and I totally and I understand that, and that's often the the problem is because it, mm-hmm. it is you put a lot of money into the cycle, and then so you sort of want to salvage it in any way you can. So it's it's yeah, definitely that I mean, you sort of fight back and forth. And then the on the flip side, patients will say, "Oh, well, if I get pregnant with you know quintuplets, I can always have a reduction, you know, a multifetal pregnancy reduction." But I think that. It's it's easier said than done. So I think sometimes it, people think, oh, okay, I can just do it, and then when it comes time to, to do it, it's actually it's not so easy, you know.
0: I think you're exactly right. I think, and I also think that that is how peop- there are some people who think that. I think there are some who don't, but yeah, I'm always amazed when I read of somebody who did an injectable cycle and then ended up with a higher order multiple, and they're so surprised. It's, I don't know how that possibly could have happened, and I'm thinking. Well, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Uh, and yeah, anyway, Um, for unexplained infertility, how much testing is reasonable to find the cause? Or does it make sense to just go ahead and try IVF um, rather than spend the time and the money trying to determine what the cause of the infertility is?
1: The only way to really arrive at the diagnosis of unexplained infertility is to rule everything else out. So, in your workup to sort of tell a patient they have unexplained infertility, you sort of you, you sort of are forced to do the you know the semen analysis, the day, the ovarian reserve testing. So you you get to that diagnosis by having done the fertility workup. But I would say for couples with unexplained infertility, the FASTER trial is is really has it, hit the nail right on the head because if you're not getting pregnant with these oral cycles, you should move on to something that has a very high chance of getting you pregnant.
0: Both from a time and a money standpoint. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and another one of the things we encourage people is after, how, how long should somebody stay who is not getting pregnant, stay with their OBGYN before moving to, a specialist, which that the term again, um, most of our listeners, long-term listeners, will know this, but a reproductive endocrinologist, which is the uh, classification doctor that specializes in fertility medication, I mean, fertility treatment. So
1: the diagnosis of infertility is a year of trying, and anyone who's less than thirty-five or thirty-five and older, we now say, actually, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine says six months. So, I think if somebody has been trying for that allotted amount of time, I think it is a good idea to come and see a reproductive endocrinologist because you, as we 're talking about today, you don't want to waste time on these more uh, on other treatments when you may actually be facing a true infertility issue that is that needs something more aggressive to to be over to overcome it
0: and and again, it's important to realize that time unless you're very young, time really isn't on your mm-hmm. side, therefore, yeah. the more time you spend. Uh, if ultimately you're going to move to a infertility clinic or a reproductive endocrinologist, the sooner you get there, within reason, as you point out, following the the one year six months. Although I sometimes say if somebody's over 40, then they need to probably even cut that six months. Some and, to two and, months,
1: and, Just to three months.
0: Yeah, that's what. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that makes sense. All right are techniques such as GIFT gift or ZIFT Z I F T really used anymore and, and i guess actually maybe that begs that you need to explain what those acronyms are first and then uh, then answer my question of how often they're used now
1: i would say that they're i have n- i have not seen them used or heard of them being used in i, I so many years i i don't even think they're in use anymore at, at least I not in I this country
0: i don't think they are either okay. although i heard not that um Somebody was posting on the Creating a Family Facebook support group, I believe it was there, not all that long ago, that they were uh, uh, considering, I think it was gift. And I, that's what's made me ask this question. I was like, darn, I didn't know anybody was doing that anymore. Um yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, that was interesting. Okay. And, and explain to people what gift and zift stand for.
1: So gift would be gamete intrathyloplian transfer, where you take the gamete and you actually put it into the fallopian tube. And zift is zygote intrathyloplian transfer. So essentially, what we do now when we do IVF is we take, you know, we extract eggs, we allow them to be mixed with sperm, and we transfer embryos back on day three or day five. In our program, we do all Day 5 transfers, and a lot of programs across the country have moved to this because by growing embryos out in culture to Day 5, you're able to select the best embryos for transfer. This allows you two benefits. One, you can put in less embryos because you know which embryo is really good and which is not. And two, you can actually get a really better assessment of a patient's fertility because by day five, you're able to really see embryo quality in a way that you can't really see it on day three or day two. Yeah, so, that
0: makes, yeah good right. sense. Go yeah, ahead. So,
1: so we so we know you know zygote transfer was done several years ago when they were their lab and their culture conditions weren't as perfected as ours is today, so they couldn't grow embryos out till day five because they weren't sure of the media or the culture conditions, et cetera, but we know how to do that now, so we feel very comfortable you know certain programs around the country feel very comfortable growing their embryos out to day five, even day six,
0: okay um. And it seems to me that the, what, is there a, is there any thought process going, if, if you're thinking between the, uh, the day three and the day five, and, and as you pointed out, there were, uh, there are a lot of advantages to, uh, for, for clinics that have a really, have a good, strong laboratory that, uh, is good success at growing their embryos to day five. What would be the disadvantages? of growing to day five. And the one that, that comes to mind that I've heard discussed, I believe it was oh, this year's or last year's ASRM conference. Um and they were talking about the the that no matter what the medium we're using and we, we use medium that we feel very good about, the the mm-hmm. growing medium that the embryos are growing in, but that uh that it's not it doesn't mimic exactly the growing me- the, the growing medium in a woman's body. Um, and that that might be a disadvantage two more days in uh, less than optimal growing. Uh, what's the thought on that and how, uh, how to weigh that?
1: I would say that if you're at a good program, the culture conditions are so perfected that I feel completely fine growing. I, I would 100% recommend going to day five. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are programs that have been doing it for years and years, and they have so much data, success data, live birth data, etc., and mm-hmm. I I think day five transfer is just so much better than a day three transfer for the amount of information that it gives you and for the selection ability.
0: Right and success yeah yeah, a singleton success rate. Mm Which is which is the goal? Here's a question from Fiona. She's, okay, she says, I'm so glad I found this show on your website. It has been the best thing I've found so far to help us. I have calmed down a lot since I found you. Uh, we we do not know. We have not been able to get pregnant for three years. We are both 32. We do not want to do IVF for a lot of reasons: cost, religious reasons, and more. What are are our other options? I know about Clobid, but what else can we do?
1: Um, I would so, – so, again, the, the full evaluation is is required, right, because she could be 32, but we could be – her ovaries could be – look like there's somebody who's 42. Like, we, we she would need a whole evaluation to assess right. really what's going on with her and what's going on with her husband because it could mm-hmm. be a sperm issue as well. But right. assuming that everything checks out and she is falling into the category of unexplained infertility, um, we would recommend something – an oral agent. Um, I, nowadays, a lot of people also – Add um acupuncture to Western medicine, which I think in, in, for several people it's complementary and, it, and it really does um, offer an additional you know some additional success um, and I would say continuing to have appropriately timed intercourse would also increase your chances without taking any additional medication.
0: We, for whatever reason, and I'm not sure why it is other than maybe because it's a safe place to ask questions, but I get a lot the question from people who are concerned about doing uh, IVF for religious reasons, and I think it's because mm-hmm. they don't feel comfortable talking about it with their doctor. And usually when, when I talk with them or when we, it's being discussed on our support group, their concern Uh, Is uh, for creating. Now, some people have just a concern in general about creating embryos. But a lot of people, their concern is uh, creating excess embryos and not wanting to face the decision of what to do with the excess embryos. Um, So, can you talk a little about how somebody who for what, for reasons such, uh, if they have religious concerns about IVF, but their their religious concerns are on the creating of excess embryos, mm-hmm. what their options might be to do uh, IVF, but to limit the number of embryos created.
1: That's a, you know a great question, and I've heard that several times. And what we can do is we can do a gentler stimulation for IVF. We can give you lower dose injectable medications, so we recruit less eggs and therefore create less embryos. Additionally, I've seen couples take the same, you know, you give the same dose of stimulation, but you sort of set out a number of eggs that will be exposed to sperm. So even if you made, let's say, 15 eggs, you may say, I only want to expose five eggs to sperm. And I'll either freeze the extra eggs, because, you know, now egg freezing is something that we're quite good at and and we can freeze eggs and, and take them out later if we need them, uh, and that way, you know, an egg is a is a gamete. Without a sperm, it's not an embryo. So people often feel much more comfortable having eggs frozen than they do embryos for the way that they, they view eggs versus embryos.
0: That's exactly right. And I think that egg freezing is really opening up the uh, IVF to people who uh, have uh, expressed a great deal of concern over creating. And, and I don't think we've – not sure we've completely gotten them – uh, the message out now, partly because a s r m uh classified only recently uh, uh have removed the within the last year has removed the experimental label mm-hmm. uh which made us hesitant here at creating a family yeah. to do a whole lot of education uh on egg freezing but I, I do think that it's changed the the landscape for people who are who have concerns uh along those lines. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about knowing when to move up the infertility treatment ladder. Our guest is Dr. Jamie Notman. She is with a reproductive endocrinologist with RMA New York. Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can find me at Davenport one or you can find Creating a Family at Creating a Family, all one word. Uh, on Facebook, you can reach me at dawn.davenport1. You can also like our Facebook page, uh, or you can join our support group. To either like the page or join the group, type in the words creating a family in the Facebook search box, and uh, both will pop up, and you can connect with us that way. We also have a large following and a growing following, I might add, on Pinterest. Uh, you can find us there at Creating a Family. Uh And we would love to have you. That's been a really fun thing for us to, to, to play around with. One of the things I realized that we did not answer was one of our earlier questions who was asking how to increase her success rate with IUI. What made me realize that we hadn't finished it was you had mentioned acupuncture uh so what else can people do there's acupuncture are there any specific diet uh foods or or things herbs to that uh, people can take to increase or to avoid because it's problematic
1: you know, there's been a lot of different diets kicked around, like gluten-free and, you know, increased fish and fish and omega fatty acids. And I think what ultimately you sort of come to the conclusion after you hear all of this is is just be healthy. You know, do what seems right to your body. Try and increase, a, eat better, you know, a larger amount of fruits and vegetables and try and eat a lot of protein and, and put healthy foods into your body because it's only going to improve your overall health, which should have an impact on your fertility. So I, I, I urge women to, you know, keep a healthy diet. And I'm also, I, you know, I advocate exercise in, in, in moderation. We think we know that women who over exercise and, and are, you know, too thin versus women who don't exercise and are too heavy, on both ends of the spectrum, that can impact your fertility. So I think it's about making balanced choices and, and having, you know, making sensible decisions.
0: What degree of, of overweightness which um, um, is, can, starts impacting your uh fertility.
1: So we know that women who are obese or uh, you know even unfortunately morbidly obese tend to have um irregular cycles in a fat it, their their menses tends to be somewhat irregular. Um, and so they such, therefore struggle oftentimes from oligo and this can have an impact on their fertility. But aside from that, there has been research that has that has demonstrated that women who are obese, which is a, a BMI I was Forget if it's a BMI over 30 over No, BMI over 35 is obese, BMI over 30 is overweight, but that they tend to have um, worse outcomes when it comes to fertility treatment and fertility. Um, and, 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 and again, I, I say this often to women it's not just about us getting you pregnant. And, you know, having a baby, but it's also during that pregnancy, women who are overweight and obese have a higher chance of gestational diabetes, a large baby requiring a C-section. All of that increases complications. And then postpartum, you have a higher chance of permanent diabetes. And, and our goal is, is not should not be as reproductive endocrinologists just to get you pregnant, but to ensure that you're healthy for your pregnancy and healthy after your pregnancy.
0: Uh, and you mentioned that Colomid or Letrozole, was effective for women who uh, have irregular cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, would that uh, also uh, then is that an effective treatment for women who are who have irregular menstrual cycles because of their weight?
1: Yeah, I mean, Clomid tends to work in patients who are who who are suffering from irregular cycles and they have to, are overweight. Oftentimes, women who have irregular menstrual cycles may be suffering from something called polycystic ovarian syndrome. And women with polycystic ovarian syndrome can suffer from metabolic abnormalities, high blood pressure, high triglycerides, obesity. So it's all, all sort of in the same family. Um, and, and Clomid can be quite effective for, for those women. But, but, again, you can give somebody Clomid and help them get pregnant, but should you also be helping them obtain a healthy lifestyle before helping them get pregnant?
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, since I, I have a question on egg freezing, and it's uh, uh, I think you'd be a great person to ask it to. It's 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 relevant to, to the topic we had talked about before when we mentioned egg freezing. Um I've seen I've been reading a lot of the research in fact we've got an upcoming show on doing egg donation with egg, with uh, using egg banks you know egg free, frozen yeah. eggs Um and now guys I think uh sign up for our newsletter I'll let you know when I don't remember I think it's within the next couple of weeks but my or month probably Um but my question is I haven't seen much research on uh, the success with freezing eggs with women over 35, what what are you what are you reading about? Is there is there any research being done? Because I mean, most of the research is on women who
1: um, are
0: donating and they're quite young. I mean, they're in their they're prime; they're in their early twenties.
1: Yeah, and and it's what you're saying. What's true is is a lot of the initial like um, data came from women who were younger because that was where the techniques were were. Tried on, and and we do have a lot of women who are freezing their eggs at the over the age of thirty five, but right. most of those women have not yet come back to thaw. So our data is somewhat limited because most of the eggs have remained frozen. But our success is lower. The old, it, it's the same thing as IVF, and I and I try and paint that picture: is the older you freeze at, freeze your eggs at, the less chance of success, the less successful you will be with those eggs. But you're yeah, right actually- that most of the data is from younger women.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's and I think that's worthy of being cautious about because I until we see, um i mean just I mean, obviously we know older eggs are, are are less likely to conceive. We know that, but I also wonder about the effect of freezing on, on older eggs if we'll see something different, I guess it's just, as you point out, maybe a little early yet to The know. eggs
1: have survived. So, when you look at egg freezing data, a lot of the data talks about egg survival. So, there doesn't seem to be a decrease in egg survival when an older egg is thawed, or even a decrease in fertilization rate when an older egg is thawed. What you oh, may okay. see is a decreased progression to blastocyst. And or day five embryo, but that, I don't believe that's the process of the egg freezing. It's more of the process of the age of the egg. Like you're just again dealing with an age related decline in fertility.
0: Yeah, it was actually been a recent uh, success story, and that uh, was reported in our group uh, of a woman who I think she was thirty eight or thirty nine when she froze her eggs, and she just gave birth a few months ago to uh twin a, a set of twins boy girl twins from those frozen eggs she's forty three oh, awesome. i think that's it
1: great. is awesome. it
0: was it was yeah, it was actually one of those feel good moments yeah here's a yeah, which we could all use you know as much as you uh, as much as you can. Um, As I just said, you are listening to Creating a Family. If you are enjoying this show and you want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. Uh, If you have iTunes on your computer or phone, just type in the words Creating a Family, and it will pop up and you're able to rate it, and we would very much appreciate it if you would because it helps us. Uh, on, uh, here's a question from Sue Ellen. She has, she says, we have severe male factor and we are trying to decide between IVF with ICSI, intercytoplasmic sperm injection, uh, or donor sperm. Other than cost and no genetic connection, what other factors should we consider?
1: Um, again, I, I think that's I think that's a good question, and it depends. I'm assuming when when she says a severe male factor, that she's talking about a, a total modal count. Uh, that that's the number of sperm available. That's probably less than two million, um, and 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 it really depends on the. Um, the the number and quality of the sperm that's obtained if there's if if the laboratory can find sperm and 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 you have an embryologist who's good at doing the ICSI you should be able to create embryos and i would definitely give a give it a try if there is sperm there if there's no sperm or the sperm quality is not great which you'll notice if your embryo quality isn't great then at that point you may consider moving on to use um donor sperm
0: okay yeah all right, so that's the, the those are be the ways, and and, and she's already said I and mean, She's factoring in cost and genetics, yeah. And those are the things, yeah.
1: Um, the, the genetic issue about it, which is which is interesting, is so when you have when you do ICSI, uh, well, I mean the Y chromosome in an offspring has to come from the father because women we only we only give an X, and the dad, the father or the male part determines sex, right? They either give an X or a Y. So what people get somewhat concerned of is if you have a male fetus from Severe male factor infertility, and you 're passing along the y chromosome, is there something wrong on the y chromosome that then you're passing mm-hmm. along so you know could you avoid that by using a donor sperm? You could because then you're not you know you're using a donor who clearly has you know would think have abnormal sperm
0: yeah but so what are some of the other health issues uh, some of what this is what I was talking about in yesterday's uh i guess it was yesterday's blog um about the uh the fact that ICSI has become almost routine even when there is no male factor uh and and a concern this these researchers were raising a concern that uh that 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 more research needs to be done because there has been some some uh we in fact we had a show about uh, sometime this spring talking about the effect of um, IVF or infertility treatment, I should say, uh, on the children conceived. And one of the things that they reported in that show was the possibility for uh, health issues, with, uh, which the assumption is that they're coming from the ICSI, uh, inner intercytoplas- cytoplasmic sperm injection. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how much of that is a factor that people should consider? What are some of the health issues associated with ICSI from the from the child standpoint?
1: Yeah, so addressing your first question, you know, people, you're right, people do ICSI for, in some centers do it for everyone, despite if there's prevalence of male factor or not. And if you read Mm -hmm. the ASRM's recommendation, they they don't, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine doesn't recommend that. They recommend uh, ICSI for um, male factor issues. ICSI is often used for PGD or PGS. And ICSI may be used in patients who've had no fertilization in an IVF cycle, but routine use of it is not really supported by the ASRM. Um, and, and the reason why we don't support routine use of ICSI is because you may actually not need it. And our standpoint is if you don't need another sort of invasive procedure, then why do it? But when it is done, we know that there is a slightly higher risk of um Abnormalities, developmental abnormalities in the fetuses, mostly genital urinary um, abnormalities, and therefore we are somewhat we we are li- we, sh- we are somewhat limited in who who we offer it to. We don't routinely offer it.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I was glad you mentioned that about and it's not supported by ASRM for, for it to be routine. I mean, there's certainly a – and we should point out that the uh, the percentage increase is a relatively small one. Very small. Most people so go along
1: – yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly what you're saying. Yeah.
0: Right. It's not something at that point to uh, to to panic on, but on the other Correct. hand, I couldn't agree with you more on your philosophy, which is if you don't need any treatment in any form of a medical treatment including ICSI or anything else. Don't right. you, you know go go with right. the least as you can. Um now let's talk a little about egg donation. We often will hear from women who uh would who want to use their own eggs and are frustrated because they feel like they are being encouraged to more quickly move to uh, donor egg than they are ready. So how does a person, what type of thought process should people go through when they're trying to decide whether or not they should uh, try another IVF cycle uh, with their own eggs or move to donor egg?
1: I think that's one of the hardest sort of forks that we come to in the fertility process is helping a couple decide when is it time to move on to egg donation and and when can we keep trying IVF. And I think it's it's a unique decision that you make with each couple. I've sat with couples who've done one IVF cycle and said, okay, I'm ready to go on to egg donor, and I've sat with couples that have done multiple IVF cycles and said I'm still not ready. I think the best determined – you of course you can use laboratory values like a couple's FSH level or their AMH level um or somebody's response to stimulation or the embryos they make but i think a lot of it has to do with where the couple is emotionally and how they are ready to sort of uh, you know accept that because to some to some couples it's a pretty easy thing to accept they say okay mm-hmm. it's just genetics but biologically i'm still that you know i'm going to gestate the mm-hmm. pregnancy I'm, i i could breastfeed if i want i'm going to deliver that child and for some couples, it's not something that they're comfortable with, and no matter how many IVF cycles they do, they may never get there.
0: Mm-hmm. So I and, often and try and
1: look at their past history and then you know gradually introduce that decision because I think it's it's a little bit difficult to introduce it all at once.
0: I think it is, and I think that's sometimes what happens is it feels like, for the, from the patient standpoint, it yeah. feels like it's being dropped on them and, and without the preparation. Um, but I do think that non-genetic parenting and in this case from the non-genetic with the mom is not necessarily just the next step up the ladder and that careful consideration because it isn't for everybody mm-hmm. uh and 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 uh but most important uh, careful preparation uh can make the difference between a, a just a, a parent who just thrives and a parent who really struggles there and we often will see people who are at the struggling stage uh, because they're seeking out for support afterwards, so uh, it's it's nice to hear somebody. I mean, it isn't. It's not necessarily just okay. If you've done X number of IVFs, now it's time to, without any thinking and without any preparation, without any counseling, moving directly as as if it is just the next form of of uh, IVF treatment. Um, how many cycles of IVF is safe to do? Uh, and I realize there's not a cut and dry answer yeah. to that. But that that's also that's doesn't that have to factor in with the decision of at yeah. some point needing to move to a different form?
1: It's that's a great question, and I I struggle with this a lot myself as you know as I sit and counsel patients because there is no I sort of wish that you know there was some guideline that says once you hit ten you're done or once you hit twelve. And, and the thing is about living here, and you know, in the in the U.S., we we're not we don't have like it's not government based healthcare. So we are able to if if a patient can afford it, they're able to do what they want to do. They can pay for as many cycles as they want, and I think that's very hard. I don't have a magical number, but I am concerned when patients start to do you know in the double digits of of IVF because you're you're. You do expose yourself to a, a lot of, of hormonal injections and, and multiple cycles like that. We, you have to be somewhat concerned.
0: Yeah. So if from your standpoint, what about the the odds of if it hasn't if IVF alone with your egg and your husband's sperm um, using a state of the and, and, and this is important, everyone using a state of the art clinic right. with a great laboratory with great success. So let's say you know you've you've gone to the 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 best clinic you can and and you've got they've got the best lab uh Abby, at some point what are the don't you your odds of success can't continue yeah. to to be the same at some point
1: you're you're 100% right and what what I echo with that is um we didn't really discuss this but we now we do a lot of comprehensive chromosomal screening now it's it's called PGS or PGD. and what that allows us to do is to biopsy the embryo to to evaluate its chromosomal status And in couples who've gone through multiple IVF cycles, and let's say their embryos are really nice-looking embryos, but they continue to not get pregnant, it's often nice to add this in because you may be able to give them an answer as to why they're not getting pregnant. And if you have a couple that's continuing to make all abnormal embryos, you're able to say to them, listen, like, we've done this. So many times, you may we've you know all of the embryos have been abnormal. It's probably time to use a donor gamete in one way or the other. So I, I think that that definitely sort of helps helps guide our decision.
0: All right. Now, with we have a question. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna uh, short shorten it. So it, basically, it's um, unexplained infertility. They are in their very late uh, 38 and well, no 39 and 41. The woman is 39. The husband is 41. Uh, unexplained infertility. They have done uh, 10 cycles of IVF, uh, and they are and have used donor egg with two of them. Uh, and they are wondering about uh, it, the advisability of of Well, it, what what do they need to factor in about deciding whether they should be looking for a surrogate?
1: that's a you know i would, most the success with egg donation cycles is is pretty high because we're taking we're taking age out of it so you've eliminated her age one would assume because you're using an egg donor i right. don't know about the quality of her husband's sperm you could always consider what's going on there. But if these have been failed cycles with nice donor embryos, I would probably advise doing a, a PGD, a comprehensive chromosomal screening cycle with the donor egg, to see what, in fact, what are the genetics of the embryos that you're making. Is it normal embryos and they're not implanting into the uterus? So is it a uterine factor? Or is it just is it a sperm factor that's giving you continued aneuploidy and, therefore, even though there's nothing wrong with the uterus, but there's something wrong with the embryos?
0: Surely I would guess, and I don't know this because she doesn't go into it in her question. But surely, if they have done ten cycles, they would have done some PGD and PGS. If they, one would guess. Uh,
1: I would think so because at that point, you know, you want to sort of get some definitive answers. If you talk, if we talked about this five years ago, I would the PGD story was less like powerful than it is today because now we do our embryo biopsies. Again, in, in sort of the um, in certain centers around the country, we do them on day five, which allows us to be much more confident in our results. And and, and if you, it, it just it's just it's it's really revolutionized the way that we do IVF.
0: So if you do them on day five, then you're freezing your embryos at that point.
1: Well, not necessarily. Are, you getting, are you
0: getting your results back that quickly?
1: It depends on where. So we are lucky to have something called, we have a facility, RMA Genetics, where we're able to send our embryos to on day five, and we can get our answers by the morning of day six and do our embryo transfers on day six, the morning of day six. There are certain programs around the country that can do that. Not every program can do that. So if you can do it, then you can do a fresh cycle. Oftentimes you have to do a frozen cycle because if the patient's embryos can't be biopsied on day five and they're not advanced enough to be biopsied until day six, you can't do a day seven transfer, so therefore you have to freeze the embryos. But um, in certain places you, you can get pretty quick results.
0: What keeps you from doing, and this is a little off topic, but I'm curious about this, what would keep you from doing a day seven transfer?
1: Well, we feel that at that point the uterus is beyond development for where the embryo is and its growth, and therefore it's dyssynchronous. Uh, the progesterone levels have already started to rise so we're we're just concerned about the embryo's ability to implant
0: gosh, that makes sense mm-hmm. um we've also in fact I just posted i think it was yesterday um some research um recent research that just came out on the uh success of using frozen versus fresh embryos yeah. and I think Surprising to a lot of people, the assumption would be, of course, that fresh would be better. But in fact, this research—and I don't remember right now uh, how large a study it was—but this, uh, do you happen to know?
1: No, but I it? mean, the frozen data is amazing. I tell patients, like in the past yeah. couple of years, it looks—I say to patients—don't feel upset about frozen at all. In fact, we think frozen might be better than fresh.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and you know, and part of it, you—you you have to wonder. You mentioned uterine factors. You have to wonder if it's, you know, that the woman's body just has gone through this, you know, massive stimulation. A hundred
1: percent. You're a hundred percent right. That's yeah. what we think it is. Those peak estrogen levels for some people are so high that that may infect implantation and in the uterus. And therefore, people are thinking maybe, you know, a frozen transfer removes all that. And that's why people do st- have or having actually amazing success rates and actually there was a study i think it was like a year ago maybe two years ago that showed that um the perinatal outcomes were better for frozen embryo transfers like less growth restriction less preterm delivery so maybe the uterus overall was just more you know was better prepared in a frozen cycle
0: yeah and that's it's it's so flies in the face doesn't it of what what we've we've often yeah. thought and it's mm-hmm. uh yeah i think that the patient community is we're doing our best to educate them on this but i will say that i think that it's it's you know it just has not been has not been well publicized and uh we're we're doing we're doing our best
1: no you're uh, right you're totally right
0: I'd like to take a moment to thank one more gold sponsor and remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources at creating a family. It is Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. They offer donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimens to more than sixty-five countries. We have come to the end of our hour. Thank you so much, Dr. Jamie Notman, for being our guest today on creating a family. If My anyone pleasure. wants. To participate in a discussion on the topics of this show, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. And to get more information about Dr. Notman or about RMA New York, you can go to their website. It happens to be an easy one to remember, R-M-A-N-Y, or that stands for York dot com. Thank you so much for joining us today, all of you, and I will see you next week. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if?